Welcome to episode 47 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. This week's guest is Josh Roby, who, by his own admission, makes books and games and things, some of which you've heard of and some of which you're going to hear a lot more about. In any case, you can check out all things Josh Roby at joshroby.com. So hi, Josh. How's it going? Hi, thanks. Uh, it's going pretty well. I went to a wedding this afternoon, and there right. were margaritas. So there, you, there you go. So it's a margarita-fueled uh, podcast, and apparently you're uh, having um, some audio issues at your place. Yes, our neighbors uh, enjoy playing their music through a Marshall stack on their driveway. Nice. Are they at actually... night <laughs> after my kids are in bed? It's it's great fun. Are they, are they playing it like literally themselves, or are they just playing oh, no. music pre-recorded? No, they're just blaring you know stuff <laughs> so not to your tastes then <laughs> i think that maybe you know, the decibels it's it's so loud that if i did like it it would be so distorted i wouldn't i i wouldn't recognize it so all right fair enough so uh so this is one out of ten for their uh, musical uh choice of music and their choice of volume and their choice of time of day right so if you're josh's neighbors and you're listening to this then uh please turn your music down Seems unlikely, but anyway. So, how long have you been a role player, Josh? Uh, since middle school, right? Um, and uh, giving a number to that would involve math. Uh, so, since middle school, <laughs> I think it's twenty three years. Right. All right. Yeah. That's a, that's a good that's a good long time. So, you must have been. Uh, so, so what did you play? What did you play first? And maybe that'll help us out. Well, okay, so. So this is a story, and I tell it often, and people might be tired of it, but still. Uh, when, when we were in middle school, my friend Robert and I really liked Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right. And specifically, we liked to draw them, and we draw, drew them all freaking day long. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, got, we found at the comic store this book that was full of, of pictures of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, and other crazy animals uh, holding various weapons, basically, and other strangeness, you might say. Yes, it was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness, mm. and we. So Robert got it, and we copied copied pictures out of that book for like at least a month, and then Robert came to school one day and said, "You know, I I started reading the book, <laughs> and I I think this is a game. <laughs> He'll be first against the wall when the revolution comes. Reading books." Yeah, exactly. So that's that's how we got started. We we played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness. Right. I liked uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as well. I I think that uh, I've mentioned this before, but we never played it. I don't think. I think we just made up the characters. We enjoyed the point, and we sort of tried to sort of bolt that onto another uh, system. I don't recall how that well, went. Well, making but. characters was far and away the most fun part of that game. Mm. The play left something to be desired. Mm. Yes, it's perhaps even more than one thing. So you started with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in middle school, and then? Oh, God, so many, so many phases of play. A lot of GURPS in high school. Right. A lot of World of Darkness in college. A lot of indie games since. Hmm. And so with World of Darkness, what did you, uh, what did you play? What particular strain? Amusingly, um, we actually played online uh, on mushes, on multi-user right. shared hallucinations. and Sure. User Dungeons. Uh, so I played a lot 
of mage and a lot of changeling, a ridiculous amount of changeling. Right. Um, for years upon years, I hosted games, I ran games. Yeah, that was a large part of my life for a long period of time. Right. And did you ever play it with you know dice and pencil and, and papers, or was it largely just storytelling using that as sort of a backdrop? I I believe I played changeling at least once. Right. On tabletop. And I actually ran the game. I didn't play it. Right. I, I can't actually remember ever playing tabletop mage. Hmm. Um, but now I'm writing the progenitors book, so uh, I guess that works out. <laughs> it, indeed, it does. So, what would be the first game that you played? You would consider an indie game, and what was it about it that made it an indie game? Oh man, the first one that I played, I think, was Dogs in the Vineyard. Right. Um, I stumbled onto the forge because, uh, I, I was writing a game for my girlfriend mm-hmm. and stumbled onto the forge that way. And then, uh, three of us, myself and Jesse Bernico and Paul Tevis, uh, decided to storm the local con with indie games, right? Uh, which we, we did and, made a significant dent on the play culture there, which survives to this day in the form of Barkon. Nice. Well played. And so what, that game that you're writing for your uh, your then-girlfriend, um, did that become anything, or did you go, this is not what I wanted to be at all, and then do something different? Or did it, but that it was sort of the genesis of... Well, it sounds like it came along at the same time as you got into uh, indie games, and did that have an effect on the way that game turned out, and, in fact, on your, your history with game designing? Oh, yeah, because Full Light, Full Steam, you can... You can see the the two sides and the seams between for most of that game. It's a whole lot of GURPS and it's a lot of indie game ideas bolted on and sometimes threaded in. Mm. Uh, it's it's not the the most elegant beast out there, uh, but it was my first game. So right, what you, yeah. cool. And so, what are you playing now? Uh, when I'm not playtesting, uh, mm, that can be a problem. Yeah. Uh, we are actually my my regular playtest group is presently just playing a Wicked Age uh, Chronicle campaign mythology. Mm-hmm. I, I don't remember what exactly it's called, um, but we've played we played uh, like four or five chapters of that, um, and that's that's fun. Um, Wicked Ages. I have a complicated relationship with Wicked Age. I really want it to be just slightly more than it is, but I really enjoy what it does. Right. Sure. And so how long do you play for when you guys get together? Like, what's a good amount of time to play, in your opinion? Oh, well, I'm, in my august opinion, uh, a game is three to four hours, and I, I, if it strays any any longer than that, you get some serious fatigue. Hmm. Or if you're think fatigue after four hours dude you guys aren't doing it right you're mm. not asking enough of each other yes. if you do it for six hours eight hours whatever else mm. uh, if you're not taking a break uh you could be doing more yes yeah sure i guess it's uh quality rather than quantity and, and have you played much online um i i mean for years i played on mushes and muds uh i just recently uh started playing on google hangouts Mm. which is fun and a very different experience from my prior online play yes a whole lot closer to tabletop yes 
that's sort of where I was going with with that um, in terms of how you found the amount of time you can play a Google Hangout game as opposed to a regular tabletop game. Some other guests have found that it's more intense. There's less crosstalk um, because of the problems that that creates with with the audio. So it tends to be a more intense experience. And they play for a, for a shorter period of time. Yeah, um, uh, the the best thing I can say about Google Hangouts is that whenever you play online. Um, like one hour of online play is never equal to one hour of tabletop play. Usually one hour of online play is maybe half an hour to 45 minutes of tabletop play. And with Google Hangouts, uh, man, one hour of of Hangouts play is like maybe 50 minutes of tabletop play. It's really, really close. There's very little time wasted or lost on – through the pipeline that you have to use. Mm. Mm. So you found it sort of be the opposite there. Some people said they found it more intense, but you find that you you get you accomplish less in the, the same amount of time. I always I always feel like I accomplish less online. Right. Uh, hear me not actually be true, uh, but that's. Oh no! I mean, perception is truth in terms of your gaming experience, right? Like that's. Uh, I don't think there's any way to say for sure what it's like for any, or empirically, sorry, say you know what you can and can't can't get done but um i guess really the angle i'm going for is you know do when you're sitting in a room full of people i find it quite easy to pick out a single conversation but i I find it much more difficult online if there are several people all speaking at the same time yes exactly so how often do you play uh well when our weekly playtest group is cracking we play weekly uh but that's not that's not always exactly weekly um sometimes it's three times a month and sometimes it's it's down to one time a month mm. and then i get I, I really get my like my thrice yearly fix uh at the local conventions here the strategic con- conventions which we pack a lot of play into mm. three years. right and being a, a parent um do you have any tips for people who, uh, you know, want to get out of the house and, and game and ways that you can you sort of make that happen or help to, to make it easier for perhaps somebody who stays behind? No, but if they've got tips for me, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> One of the uh, tips that I think it was Michelle McNeil had on episode 18, maybe, uh, she was saying that the that whoever's hosting the game, um, everybody chips that has kids chips in together and then they, they hire a babysitter. Um so that everyone can uh, can play and not have to worry about kids. I haven't quite yet got to actually experiment with that because, unfortunately, a lot of the gamers that we know who have kids, some of them have gaming spouses and some of them don't. Right. So it's this weird, weird exceptional space. So we will have a babysitter so you can come game. Just never quite fits or works out. And then... Mm. We- like the the spouse is saying, no, I'll stay home with the kids, and then it's it becomes this obligation and this mm. thing, you know. Yes, yeah, sure. There's a lot of a lot of subtext there. I guess in a perfect world, everybody'd be married, everybody'd have kids, and everybody'd have spouses that were gamers and wanted to play, right? But I really? think that there's something for to be said for you know not necessarily keeping your hobbies separate, but perhaps keeping a gaming session separate. You know, having some some uh, alone time or away time. I guess you you would call. It. I think that um, Sam Chup. Um, in the last episode, episode 46, was talking a bit about, you know, like the it's good for your mental health to sort of get away from everything and being able to do something. If it just happens to be gaming, then uh, then maybe joining those two together is not necessarily the best thing. 
So how many role-playing books do you own, and what was your first? Uh, actually, uh, well, the first was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, I've, I've rather significantly purged my collection. So I have, I think, about 30 titles on my shelf. Right. Um, over the course of my life, I, I mean, I used to... I used to have enough of the Changeling books that you could see the mural that was on the spines, right? Nice. I, I, I had a lot of books. <laughs> so through moves and divorces and whatever else uh, has, has whittled them, it down to really the, the essential books that I really wanted to take forward. Right. And have you replaced some of those paper books with PDFs as well? I... I am not a big PDF user player, mm-hmm. which is kind of ironic because I am becoming very much a PDF publisher. Right. Yeah, that was I, one of the things that uh, that that got me into um, into publishing, or at least writing my own game. Is that, that once upon a time, you know, if you wanted to put a book out, you had to be prepared to pony up, you know, twenty thousand bucks in order to just get one sort of print run. But then I listened to um, a podcast called Fear the Boot, and on it there was an interview with um, Fred Hicks, who was talking about the, you know, the possibilities of you know digital publishing, and that sort of made a light bulb go off on my head, saying, you know, well, I guess I could, you know, write it. And there is a chance, a way to get me to get it out there is to to send it out digitally. But I'm a little bit like you, and as much as I like, you know, the, the paper book in, in front of me. So yeah, it's an interesting uh, thing. Yeah. I wonder if it's an age thing. I also well, I also come from a my my educational and professional background is uh, editing and publishing. I mean, I used I used to make textbooks. For, right. Oh, um, so. I and my my dad worked as a pressman for decades and decades. So I have this really weird sacred respect for the the process of constructing a book, mm-hmm. which I have found to my chagrin that just does not actually translate to any con- customers that I have. Uh, <laughs> I really I really enjoy making a really good book, mm. and. And, and that's uh, sadly not not really in demand. I, I'm trying to figure out how to make a really good digital product, which is slightly different and is a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, it's, it's not quite the same. Mm. Well, last in the last episode, um, again uh, we covered a lot of ground uh, with Sam and I. But one of the things he said is that Phil Bricato's, um book is you know beautiful to behold. The book I'm referring to here is Deliria, um, but. He, that Phil Bricotto doesn't feel that it um, it translates so well to to PDF, and I think that that's possibly the the path that you are you know trying to head down yourself to try to find a way to make the the PDF feel um, virtually or, or actually feel like a you know like like you're producing the the book itself as a work of art. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh... Three projects ago, uh, I did Void Vultures, uh, which is an exclusively digital, and that's it, sort of uh, game. Uh, It's designed so that it looks good on screen and looks good when you print it at home. Right. So, among other things, it doesn't have any art that bleeds to the edge because home printers just don't do that. Right. It also does not need to be bound. It's a lot of spare uh, rule sheets that you can you know throw around the table mm-hmm. and 
it does a lot of those things where the the way that you interact with the product is atomized across uh, across a lot of pieces of paper on the table or on uh, pages of the electronic document. Um, right. And that was, you know, to some extent successful and also highlighted a lot of uh, pitfalls and traps. So uh, sort of the 2.0 of that is my Vicious Crucible series, which um, as far as... <laughs> It's sort of a two-point because it's not a digital product at all. Um, there, there is a digital version that you can download, and they're actually, I should, you know, uh, I forgot the word for selling my own stuff. Promote? Promote. That's good. Shill <laughs> uh, is the one that I was looking for. <laughs> are, are free. They're Creative Commons, and they're uh, a download at joshrubby.com. So go get them. Um, of course, why not? They're free. But uh, like among other things, Void Vultures revealed, especially once you started getting all the expansions that were stretch goals from Kickstarter, um, that there were just too many rule sheets on the table. Vicious mm. uh, Crucible tries to fix that by having one that is necessary and then one that is optional and apropos for the current setup. Right. Uh, and that works a lot, lot better. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's yeah, not being able to find the the piece of paper is one of the most frustrating experiences in life. But but just going down that path um, means you're you know you know you're treating the you're at the vanguard really of trying to make that digital um, sort of the digital edge that that role playing publishing seems to have at the moment and and trying to address some of those issues that people have with you know that um, that feeling they had for actual books. But I mean, the and then like the flip side of it is that once you condense the rules of the game down to you know one piece of paper, both sides, it becomes so small that it doesn't feel like a product anymore. It doesn't feel if, if somebody gets it, they don't feel like they've they've got something cool and awesome and mm. and, and, and fiddly, right? Yes. So how how much is packed into those? two pages and how much will uh, show up through emergent play uh, when it just comes on one piece of paper it doesn't really feel like it's a big thing yes yeah that's it's another interesting um, problem I suppose or um, I'm not quite sure what the opportunity I guess um, <laughs> is that with the production of role playing games through PDF it's hard to um, it's harder, I should say, to and uh, convince people of the value of what it is that you're producing. I mean, everybody's got a, everybody's got a computer, right? Everybody can sort of you know bang out some some words on a bit of paper. You know, what am I actually getting here? Like like there's certain there's a certain feeling of uh, solidity and validity to a you know a nicely bound um, book, regardless of the contents. Yeah, and honestly, I think the the digital only will very shortly become uh, an app-driven sort of thing. Mm. That's, that's really the next step right after you get, you know, you, got, you get your PDFs and then maybe you add a couple of the little buttons and form fields that PDF can handle. And mm. then if you want to go any bit further than that, you're really looking at an app. Mm. And I think that would be really, uh, really interesting to play a role-playing game, a tabletop role-playing game that 
like your tablet is on the table and is an essential part of play. Hmm. Yes. I hope somebody else will figure that out for me. <laughs> Um, so if you were going to have a final role-playing supper, and you're not necessarily going to have to be uh, executed, um, but it's the last game you're ever going to play. Like everybody's going to suddenly forget, or you're going to be transported to Mars, or you're going to go somewhere where role-playing games are illegal. What game would you want to play? Uh, well, I think the clever answer is A Thousand and One Nights, because that one never ends, right? Mm, mm, yes, yes. <laughs> but if you actually had a limited, you had a finite amount of time. Uh, man, a finite amount of time. Uh, then I want to play something really punchy, uh, something like uh, PTA or Sorcerer. Um, right. Really going to take a premise and really drive it home. Mm, mm. So you'd be interested in a sort of an emotionally charged one, or would you like an action charged sort of a thing? Oh, uh, definitely an emotionally charged game. I mean, action as well, uh, but if the action is not exemplars of the emotional drama involved and kind of disinterested sure fair enough so what's your definition of an indie game oh god um so honestly in in my personal parlance when i'm talking um i use indie game to refer to sort of the the school of thought and design that surrounds the forge and the forge diaspora. Right. Um, and I know a lot of people want to use indie to mean independently published mm. for which we have a perfectly good term. It's called independently published mm. um, or independent or, or whatever else. And we have a lot of good terms that are the words actually mean what we say for all of those other things. We should use those terms when we mean those things. But sure. as far as people generally know what you mean when you, I mean, well, people, role players usually know what you mean when you say it's an indie game. They, they know it's uh, a shorter footprint, it's focus on drama, it's got clever or elegant game mechanics or tries to. Um, it probably divides play into scenes, which is something that doesn't actually happen outside of indie games very often, but is totally normal inside indie games Mm -hmm. um and and focuses on uh characters who want things quite possibly at cross purposes that's an karen 12's um episode 43 i think uh was uh said that her for her definition that an indie game had uh the emphasis was on the story and there wasn't much available for character progression at least in terms of their skills rather than sort of like emotional or or, you know um, development in terms of the psyche Um, whereas a traditional game there was a lot more emphasis placed on taking your character and building them up as they did things that that's interesting because that's kind of the divide that i uh, I'm kind of aiming myself at right now because right. uh, I, I do really like the, the gameplay that focuses on personal drama and development of psyche and character development. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I really want to spend my points to make my character better at things. Mm. And I like a big long arc or slope or whatever uh, for that progress. 
it's it's my one complaint with Apocalypse World because I I love that game to 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 something I don't know destruction sure I I really really like playing that game um, but it's the it, it's mechanical progression especially for how I like to play my characters only goes to about six to seven sessions right. And then there's just nothing left to do mechanically. Hmm. Um, so that's one of the things that like uh, Rennie Jenny is, is going to try and uh, address. Uh, but For those people that don't know what Rennie Jenny's means, maybe we could uh, we could dig into that now because I've got a couple of questions I want to ask along those lines. So Rennie Jenny's is Renegade Jenny's and Boilerplate Jack steampunk role playing in the world Atlantis broke. Right. ICMF. <laughs> so, what uh, what can you tell us about it? Um, it is uh, it's my current big project, right? Um, and it's a global steampunk game, and it features picaresque roleplay, which is like as as abstract and arcane as you can really get. Um, but what it really what it mean? What I mean by picaresque roleplay is that it takes as its inspiration uh, Firefly, Blake Seven, Farscape, and and uh, really those three are those will get you exactly where I want you to go mm-hmm. because you you've got a group of people who have fallen through the cracks of normal and respectable society, but in so doing they have found a a route to sort of outside power in being outsiders and that mm-hmm. they come into situations and they have, they have the, the power and the ability and the freedom to make change or simply to survive and get out sometimes. Mm. Right. Sure. Uh, but it's also one of the important things for me is that it's a global steampunk game. Sure. Uh, so I've got the, uh, Comancheria and the Sultanate of Acha and the uh, Zululand and the Full Jihad and all of this other stuff that's happening in mm. the country and is fascinating and awesome and grist for role play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm trying to shovel in all of that stuff as well as you know your Duke Jodpers who says what what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, that was one of the things that uh, when I was writing the. Victoria, um, my my background is in in science, and I've done some science writing in the past, and I find it very difficult to um, sort of not give something a thorough treatment. Um, so I set Victoria um, in you know Victorian London uh, essentially, but I did peripherally mention you know the Raj and and uh, you know explorers to the South Pacific and and stuff like that, but I. But I, in my back of my mind, you know, I still think a little bit about it now. Um, is about writing some uh, some expansion material for that. Um, but it sounds like you've gone for the uh, for everything all at once, and you've you've gathered up all the the good sort of um, evocative bits to uh, to play your your or at least to allow your characters to play off against. Yeah, here's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what the, the question I wanted you to, to, to ask you uh, about, well, actually, you know, the first question is, you know, what's your timeline on that? When can people find out some more information about that if they're interested, or you know, when can they look for some something more solid coming out? Uh, my timeline on that is, I have a four-month-old baby. <laughs> uh, 
sometimes let me write and sometimes does not. Right. Uh, I really, really hope to get a beta playtest document out the door uh, sometime soon for summer. Right. Whether or not I'll be able to get that off the ground, we'll see. Um, I have not even half the manuscript written. Um, I because I I have been playtesting this game for a year and a half. Right. You see. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Six major mechanical revisions. It's it's kicked my ass up and down the street. Um, but so all that has left me at the end of the day, amusingly enough, is. Uh, two sheets of paper front and back with the rules on them. <laughs> right, right. And a lot more stored upstairs, though, I should imagine. To present to the world. Right. So I am in the process of basically taking every bullet point and paragraph on those two sheets and expanding it out to a whole section that will uh, appear in the eventual book. Hmm. That um, that process, or at least doing it in that uh, in that fashion, I've, I've mentioned it a couple of times before. But um, one of the things that had a big influence on the way that I wrote uh, Victoria is that the the author Ken Follett, who who wrote Pillars of the Earth um, and Well Without End, and I use those two as an example because they're the ones that have been on television recently. But you know, he did a what he called a masterclass. Well, actually, it may not have been his words, masterclass. But he talked about writing, and he said that that, that his process is to uh, to start with a paragraph that describes the whole story and then take that paragraph and then expand it into into two paragraphs and so on and so forth and take those points and then and then flesh flesh them out and is that a conscious thing that you yourself have done or is that just the the way that you know this particular project has uh, has turned out um that more to the project um i mean i also have a big long uh, ornate outline that I've made that goes through everything that I need. Mm. Uh, but one of the things that I use to make that outline is going through the, the rule sheets. Um, and there were also a number of things that didn't appear on the rule sheets, were, which were really more reminder sheets for my poor beleaguered playtesters who went through so many revisions of how the game works. So I mean, it was every every week we would get together. Okay, and now the the live change for today is this, mm. and this works like this. Sure, uh, that's why those sheets existed, and uh, they're they're useful as a sort of crystallization of how the game mechanically developed. Uh, but I really need to actually make them understandable to people who aren't my playtest group. Mm. Yeah, that they that can that can be that can be a challenge. Um, now, the other question I wanted to ask you about that was, where did your title come from? Uh, so this is this game used to be its working title, and it was I'm pretty sure always a working title uh, was Atlantis Risen. That's mm-hmm. uh, one of the elements of the setting is that Atlantis has risen, and that's actually the divergence point for the alternate history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was a working title from the start, but it can't quite be. I mean, I can never remember anything anymore because I don't get to sleep. But <laughs> a few months ago, I, I it really came to the point where, uh, as far as the promotion dance that goes into publishing role playing games, uh, I knew that I was going to have to start being a lot more public about 
the the phases that I was in and start leaking and talking about stuff that I was interested in in this game. And in order to do any of that, I was going to need a, a title to, you know, to be the banner under which all of that happened. Right. Lance Risen was not going to cut it. Mm. Um, and so I, I spent about a month figure, just thinking on my own about what I could title it. I spent another month talking to a handful of people. Um, and uh, eventually I just <laughs> I said, fine, I'm just going to ask Google+. Plus. Mm. So uh, I started a thread on Google+, and said, help me aim my game. It's about um, and help, uh, and there were I think like eight to ten uh, people who jumped in, and God, they were very, very helpful. Not only in eventually getting that title, um, but in kind of putting me through the rounds of what is the game about, and how how am I eventually going to. Uh, portray it and how am I going to present it to people and yeah I mean if nothing else my elevator pitch for the game is much much sharper um, mm. and away with this fantastic new title right and I lurked that uh, I lurked that thread um, and I was and while I was while I was reading it um, I was sort of thinking a little bit about a conversation that uh, Jason Morningstar um, and I had had and the I was looking at it, and I was inside. I like my my um, designer mind was going, "No, Josh, no, no, don't talk about it. Don't because it'll it'll just it'll fritter away into the into the air." I mean, obviously that was not happening, but but for myself, um, I'm the exact opposite. Um, I feel like I feel like when I'm when I'm writing, I I just I need to I need to think all the thoughts myself or it remove it sort of sucks away my impetus i feel like in some ways i'm not i'm not doing it my myself anymore so i the for victoria before i even um before i even ran a first play test i wrote an awful lot of it and revised it and imagined it and reimagined it before i even wrote you know one one play test so that the game i'm developing at the moment um I've did started doing playtesting much much earlier. I'm trying to break myself of that that idea. But I guess what I'm coming around to saying is, it was is that something that you've always done that you're happy to sort of outsource? Or not outsource is not the right word. Uh, crowdsource. Sure, sure, yes, that's the one. Like not outsource, crowdsource. Are you happy with crowdsourcing uh, your ideas and sort of like collating all of those things and and giving you know giving credit um, where due in the, in the credits of the book and stuff like that? Or do you feel like um, is that something that's that's new to you? I'm I'm very happy with it. I am not at all comfortable with it, right? Uh, because oh, yeah, good. I'm good. I'm not a freak then. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> to, I want it to be perfect before anybody sees it, right? I want mm. to get everything done and all the all the jots and tittle corrected before it sees the light of day. Mm. And I I have slowly and painfully come to the realization that that really doesn't work right. uh, that uh there is a this fantastic resource of of creativity and criticism and whatever else um called the internet slash my friends slash uh my fan base in giant scare quotes right there mm-hmm. 
And there are a, a lot of people who are really, really happy to lend hand and uh, help you refine your ideas and get to a place where the the ideas and the the finished product is a lot stronger than it would have been all by yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the the noble creative side of it. The uh, underhanded marketing side of that is, man, you have to get people talking about your game. Oh yeah, for sure. Started uh, a lot sooner than you think. Mm. It's a whole lot of work to create a community that cares about your game, that will talk about your game, that will play your game, that will evangelize your game. Mm-hmm. And this sort of thing helps that uh, that task. Yes, there's the, the game that uh, Victoria I wrote primarily for, for myself. It was a it was a, a way for me to sort of think about what it was that I, I thought about role playing and, and, and turn it into a into a book and into a, a game that it uh, that turned out to um, turned out to work. But um, yeah, getting like you say that, and we haven't really talked about this on the on the show before, so maybe you can uh, dot a few extra eyes for us here. But um, in terms of the way that the internet works now, that um, when would you say you would start to talk about it where people um, outside of your very small group would start to hear about it? Um, um, honestly, I think the the key ingredient that you need to nail down is you need to know what the premise of your game is. Right. Um, which might sound a little weird, but for this game, I didn't, I, I didn't know what the premise of this game was for a long time. It took a lot of playtesting before I was able to winnow down what was like elements that are in the setting, but are not things that PCs do. Right. Right. I, I discarded an entire character class because of that. Right. Uh, and I eventually came down to the point where, oh, okay, it's a picaresque novel in a steampunk world. Okay. And once I had that, I, it's, I can open it up to anybody because I, I have the core, right? right? And I share my enthusiasm for that core idea and uh, kind to specific examples, which uh, hopefully are evocative and grabby, and other people will latch on to those specifics and, and create their own and suggest things and whatever else. And as long as it's all still going off of that core idea, I'm golden. Yes, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's uh, and then so at, at that point, like, does is there any magic magical time for that? Like, would you do you you would suggest for somebody who is designing a game? I, I I think it probably is very different for every single project. Like this right. one, I didn't know what the core idea was until wait, after months of role play or play test. Uh, for like Sons of Liberty, I started with that premise, right, and elaborated the game from there. Uh, so I I think if you know what the game is about, you're good. But also, you can fool yourself about whether or not you know what the game's about. So. <laughs> There. But, but then talking about it, I guess you'll get asked all the important questions that are going to force you, like you say, you know, to start thinking about, you know, do I have my premise locked down or am I sort of flailing around here with what I thought was a great idea, but in actuality I don't have one. Yeah, and one of the very, very common pit traps in this sort of creative work is that when somebody says, what about X? And it's so tempting to say, yes, I could do that too. Mm. Yeah, 
can do that and 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 that. And the more you do it, the more you dilute that core of the game. Yes. You have to be really, really careful that, yes, it can do that, is, yes, it can do that because that is in line with the core premise. Okay, so uh, that's Rennie Jenny's uh, in a nutshell, but you've actually got a Kickstarter on the go at the moment. Yeah, uh, that's uh, the the next installment in my Vicious Crucible series, which is uh, sort of an experiment. Um, right. a standalone, uh, situation-first games. Um, so they, they come with six PCs and a number of NPCs and a situation and a setting. Uh, and, and more or less, it goes straight from zero to sixty, and uh, psychological damage ensues. Uh, and it's it's designed to be played in. You could you could play the long form in in three, four, maybe five sessions, or you could really smash it together into a, a con session. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's 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 all standalone and self contained, uh, which I'm. I'm experimenting with to see if anybody actually wants really sure. Sure. down. Sure. Um, and where can people find out about that? It's out on Kickstarter right now. Uh, Vicious Crucible 3 or just search my name, Josh Ruby. Uh, and right now, uh, as of this recording, uh, there's eight days to go and we have uh, a little under a grand to raise. Uh, and basically i'm I'm going to make these until the kickstarter stop working is what i've told myself Um, so i've already done two and this is the third one Mm -hmm. um and uh i i think my the internets slash my audience will tell me when the series is over right fair enough is will i make more or am i done and i'm going to find out on sunday yes indeed you will good luck with that all right, so what causes a role-playing game to die before the story finishes? And just lots of things. Kids. Uh, <laughs> um, people moving away. Uh, but I, I think we're outside of those, like, there's, I mean, like, I mentioned the passing apocalypse world where unless you want, unless you want your character to switch to a new uh, playbook or start a new character, sometimes... The, the, the mechanics end before the the story ends, right? Uh, and you can you can sort of play that out sometimes. Uh, sometimes you can sort of play a, a denouement episode, which is playing out the rest of the story, only barely touching the mechanics or whatever else. Sure. Um, but also, there's especially when you get to like serial play, like. Every time we play, we, we do a thing like a, like a leverage game or something. Sure. Uh, it is possible to exhaust the, the, the setting premise potential. I'll just throw some words together there. Um, but <laughs> the number of things that you can do in this setting is finite. I mean, it's often very, very big, but still finite. Um, and sometimes the stories that you are telling, and the stories are about the characters and their relationships with each other. Sometimes right. stories do not match. Uh, the length of the story does not match the number of things you can do. Right. Uh, and there are, you know, there are ways to fix that, but it's a really big hurdle. 
Uh, it's a big obstacle and it can kneecap your game and it can kneecap television shows because it does that all the time. Mm. Any examples you can think of? Supernatural is facing that right now um, because they, like, season five, I think. Um, basically, when uh, the showrunner who started the show uh, was done, and walked away, um, they tied everything up. And then the network wanted more episodes. So they kept the show going and they extended the stories. And it's, it's a little uh, lopsided and uh, stumbling along. But it, not, not as bad as it could be, to be honest. But there's a definite change in uh, Supernatural, among other things. Sure. Opposite of that problem is the Stargate franchise, which continues to have things that you could do long after they have already gone through, I think, like four rounds of characters. So if you could role play with four people, living or dead, who would it be and why? And you can't choose deceased family or so or somebody just so you can see them again. And you can't choose uh, game designers. Um, and you also can't choose somebody who's in your current uh, group because obviously those are the people you would want to role play with the most. Oh, man, I can't d- include game designers at all? Well, you sure. I mean, you're the guest here, Josh. You can really choose whoever you want. I'm just hoping that you'll uh, you choose some some interesting types. Well, uh, Kurt Vonnegut is the hands down my favorite author of all time. Right. He's you know he's wacky, whimsical, and I think he would be right at home at a gaming table. I think that would be fun. Uh, uh, Brand Robbins is uh, an old friend who used to not actually live anywhere close, but we used to play on those mushes all the time. Right. And, uh, we don't mush anymore, and, and he now lives way over in Canada, and we never see each other. And, man, it would be great to play with Brand again. Right. Um, uh, Ryan Macklin, of course, uh, right. my long-distance collaborator on uh, pretty much everything uh, I do. Right. Uh, he's my editor on Vicious Crucible. Um, he's my collaborator uh, with Rennie Jennings. Uh, right. I edited uh, Mythender with him. And he's hopefully going to be putting out uh, his own game, Sorcerer's Sands, that's uh, using the Void Vultures system. Right. So we we do a lot of stuff together, but we don't often get to see each other, and we very rarely get to game. Hmm. Uh, so he'd definitely be at my dream table. Right, sure. Uh, and, and the fourth is I'd really like to play with my wife, because I don't get to do that anywhere near as often as I get to. Right, you've got a game or wife? Oh yes, yes I do. Oh, lucky you! Well played. There are actually a number of uh, a number of people I've had on the show who have uh, gamer wives, and and just an ephemeral idea I have for the future is I would like to do a, a sort of a group of questions with uh, sort of a he said she said type scenario where um, where both where the both the partners would sit down together and where there'd be a group of questions where people sort of disagreed about stuff and we'll find out if there is actually any sort of differences between the way that ladies game and the way that uh, gentlemen game, but. Uh, that's uh, something for for another time. So, what do you think you'd play? Oh God, with with those people, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, something a little whimsical. Um, hopefully, not downright wacky because that gets old. Uh, maybe like unknown armies, or uh, I honestly probably just PTA because then we can. Uh, primetime adventures, so we could just make up our our own setting and have that. All right, and uh, any particular setting you'd like to see play out? 
Yeah, that's something that I think I would I would leave for the table to figure out uh, collectively because I think the the brain power in in that table is a lot more than I have in my skull. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so going to the, the flip side of that then, Hell exists and you're sent there contempt to play a certain style of game for eternity. What would it be and why? And this doesn't mean like I don't I really don't want to play um a particular game. It's a sort of a type of game or a way that a game goes that you, you really that you don't like. I, I think the, the kind of game where the, the GM has a story for you to play through. Right you aren't actually going to affect that story. You're just going to play through it. Right. Uh, because I could play that for a few sessions, but after a while that would really start to rankle. And, and if I played it for eternity, I, I would just, I would go insane. Alrighty. So um, who would you be playing with? Oh, geez. And this I... could, doesn't have to be a specific person. This can be just like a type of, uh, a type of, ro- of role player. Like for maximum torture. I think everybody mm. else at the table would be totally happy with it. <laughs> and would get annoyed with you if you tried to derail? I, 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 my, my character's at a, a precipice of, of moral quandary, and they're like, we don't care. Wow. <laughs> Roll the dice, Josh. <laughs> we don't care about this quandary of yours, <laughs> unless you're going to throw yourself into it. Um, so who is your favorite hero and why? Oh God, um, I don't know. Uh, quite possibly Hank from Terriers. Okay, and why is that? Because Hank is um, a a normal guy. Um, he's the, the the best thing about uh, Terriers is that it's uh, it's a you know it's a private investigator's you know every week but uh it never ever strays away from understanding that the characters are are people and they they they're human they have human problems and backgrounds and whatever else um and uh the the pathos on it is just palpable and i love watching it uh and i, and I love watching hank who is who's very heroic despite having a, a whole ton of crap uh monkeys on his back and whatever else so all right and so who's your favorite villain then favorite villain um i don't i don't really like villains what? I, because as, as far as i'm concerned in any story if if you can get to the point where you can point at a character and say he's a villain right it's just unredeemable I don't care about them anymore, right? Okay. Uh, but uh, at the same time, villains are different from antagonists, right? So, like, Zuko from uh, Avatar The Last Airbender is really grabby and evocative and uh, love to watch him do his thing, most of which is wine. Uh, <laughs> but it's... I, I, I love the Zuko episodes, right? And Zuko alone is probably the best episode in the whole uh, series. And of course, he doesn't stay a villain through the rest. I mean, spoilers. (laughs) So, do you have a role-playing game soulmate? And if so, what is it? A game that just fits you? Wish I did. Because, man, my life would be so much easier. (laughs) And I wouldn't have to design role-playing games. 
because it would already exist. Yeah, that's the that's the thing, isn't it? I wonder whether a game designer can't really have a role playing game soulmate because, as you say, you're always trying to write the game that you would like to play the most. And so, by having a soulmate, then it perhaps would remove the impetus from from you know the writing process. And like, why am I writing this when the perfect game already exists? So, good good point, Josh. Well played. <laughs> well played. Okay. What's your um, worst con experience, and why? And what I'm really hoping is. Um, that you've got some crazy type of uh, con story that uh, that you can blow my mind with because I'm actually very lucky that in all the games that I've I've run I haven't and and run in I've never really had any really awkward or difficult situations so that may not be that may be more because um, the sheer volume is is not there but I may also just have been lucky have you got any good tales to tell us I sadly do not well it's uh, good it's good you don't <laughs> um, I'm I'm actually pretty good about. Uh, stepping away from a table that's not going to entertain me. Right. I, I have done on a number of occasions. Uh, I, and for those of you who have never done it, it really is less painful than you think it is, and it's less awkward than you think it is. Just say, you know what? I think you guys are having fun. I'm not really plugged in. Thanks. I, I'm going to go. And you walk away and you play a board game downstairs for remainder of the, the slot right and you're happy mm-hmm. um, oh sure when when the the really the the joke that isn't funny and uh just is really offensive lands on the table you can walk away it's okay mm. but what about when you're in charge josh oh when you're running the game mm. uh, you you can kick people out of your game um, I have not ha- ever had to do that myself. Right. Um, I have seen it happen, and it's a lot less awkward than you think it is if you've never done it or never experienced it. Um, and most of the time, everybody else at the table is really hoping that that person will go away already. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, mean, I've, I, I have had some friends who have asked players to leave or or told them that, you know, this is not the game for you you're not going to have fun right. uh, or uh, <laughs> uh man now i'm going to have to remember it because uh my friend colin has has the best uh response which is so what is your character doing what now is that important and significant and uh, forwards your character arc or are you just masturbating at the table right now <laughs> <laughs> and they say i'll get my coat I think this actually whipped that character into shape and they actually, you know, started playing the game and not just futzing with the scenery. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's good times. <laughs> so have you ever had any of those experiences in an actual gaming group? Because that's like takes it to the next level. No, I have not had that problem. Uh, but I, I'm also, I'm paranoid and careful. I mean, our, our current playtesting group, which has been, uh, meeting regularly for and this is scary and weird almost seven years now wow yeah it's ridiculous um but when we first set it up um the first time we met was a let's get together and play a game and then we'll see if we want to make this a thing yes yeah yeah that's interesting you should you should couch it like that because that's one of the threads that's been sort of weaving in and out is this idea of um because you have very little time to spend 
um, outside of your family obligations the older you get getting that gaming group together that really works is important and in a lot of ways it's like a date right like you're actually like saying is this somebody that I want to spend a portion of my life with yeah totally is and uh, do you, so so after your first date everybody agreed that it was it was going to work or did you just kick some people out or not invite them back next time or we we continued on although the the membership has changed over the years so I mean, it was, we, we have like two and a half of the original players are still with us. And we've lost some and added some over the course of years. Right, right. So going to the flip of that then, what's your best uh, con experience and or best convention and why? Uh, so this is, this is hard because like con con i i love the strategic cons out here in la they're they're little cons they happen three years three times a year and it's 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 the best kind of local con because you show up you play games you go home right it's just it's and it's just optimized for that and it's awesome and it just it does what it says on the tin right right sure uh, but then on the other hand there's nerdly beach party uh, which is a thing we do out here where gamers from basically from L.A. and from San Francisco all get on the one and meet in the middle and San Simeon, and we camp for three days and game in and around that. Right. And, and there's a whole lot to be said for that because it's, it's got a, a very much a family feel at this point because we've been doing it for a while. And uh, there's uh, there's alcohol at the table, among other things. Right. Uh, there's bacon, yes. which is, <laughs> and also you there's there is very little of the really unfortunate politicking and jockeying that can happen at a bigger con, as far as who gets to go to lunch with who and all of that. Is that a thing? It can be a thing, um, and I know I, there are a number of uh, designers I know who uh, have stopped going to cons because it can get really hairy. Is that where, right? Yeah, because people people want to you know meet their favorite designer and have lunch with them, and unfortunately, there's only so many lunches in the weekend, and so many people can fit, fit around a table, and it just gets kind of creepy sometimes. Is that uh, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm, apparently, yeah. I mean, either I'm well. Let's be honest. I'm not popular enough probably to people to want to have lunch with me, but at the same time, it never occurred to me that that would be a thing. But I suppose you're right. You know, like you've got to have you know lunch with Josh Ruby, and the, you've got to find the big enough table to to fit everybody uh, fit everybody around. I hadn't it hadn't occurred to me. So maybe that's a good thing because I I tend to like my own company, so that might actually be a bit might actually be a bit much. Um, the, the- and you sit down at the fire and have lunch. <laughs> well, that, that, that's right. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no. And is that sort of like the West Coast camp nerdly? Is that that's that's pretty much exactly what it is. All right, nice. So if you're in the uh, and so if people want to find out about that, is that uh, invitation only, or do they go to the? Is there a, a sort of a nexus for that information? Nerdlybeachparty.org. Um, and the next one is the third weekend of April, uh, whatever that is. Okay, so moving along then, uh, what makes a great convention game? Uh, I mean, the easy answer is the good players. Um, <laughs> good, good on you for being being ironic there, Josh. Yes, other than good players, of course. Uh, as far as like prepping a good convention game, hmm. uh, knowing what the game is about, because most 
role-playing games can do a number of things, but knowing what you're going to play at the table. Like, I'm going to play a heist. I'm going to play a, a blood opera. I'm going to play whatever else. Um, that really goes a long way. Um, I'm a big fan of pre-generated characters because it's one less thing to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, but love letters are a fantastic halfway uh, solution to that. Right. Sure. Uh, what's, what's a love letter mean in that context? Uh, love letters are something that uh, Vincent uh, introduced in Apocalypse World. And uh, when he he made uh, Hatchet City in Blind Blue, which is sort of a, an Apocalypse World scenario, um, instead of pre-generated characters... He has a, a love letter to the hard holder and a love letter to the gun lugger and a love letter to the hocus. And each one of these is, so, hey, you run this hard hold and this is what's happening in it. Now make a character. Or you, you are in charge of this cult that lives at the hard hold and this is what you've been doing in the midst of all this chaos. Now make a character. Um, and that is... Because it gets you basically all of the good stuff from making a cast of pre-generated characters and inflicting them on your players mm-hmm. uh, while still allowing the players to do a lot of uh, customization and make a character that they actually want to play rather than the closest approximation that is available in the set of characters. Right. Good. Good. That's a good idea. Um, so a idea. I'm totally stealing it for... Renny Jennings. <laughs> what are your rules for, and what are the best role-playing snacks? Uh, well, the the actual rules are: I don't want to eat this many cookies. The best way I have of getting rid of these cookies is to put them on the table at game night. Right. Uh, but if I actually wanted to make something that is, you know, intentionally, uh, I I do. I do enjoy a healthy snack, amusingly enough. Um, I I freaking love those little veggie plates that you can get at the store with the ranch dressing in the middle. Mm-hmm. I, I will eat one of those for lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I could put those out on the table, and those are those are a good alternative. I guess that that will have to do. Vegetable uh, vegetable platters it is all round, I guess, for my next role-playing session. Uh, not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So um, I got a couple of uh, verses here for you, um, and you can tell me you can either set them to battle each other, or you can just talk about which is your favourite. But uh, Gandalf or Dumbledore? I, uh, Dumbledore, hands down, because he's uh, he's a dude, he's a human guy who's trying to make the best of a terrible situation. Gandalf is a freaking angel. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's less. It's like the the villain once once they're irredeemable or once they're you know, sent from God, there's there's not much uh, wiggle room left to make it a very compelling character. Right. All right, fair enough. What about Luke Skywalker or Harry Potter? Oh, that's a good question because are we talking about just like the movies Luke Skywalker? Are we talking the expanded canon Luke Skywalker? Um, mm, I'm going to go with the movies for Luke Skywalker and I'm going to go with the books for Harry Potter. Okay, um, probably Harry Potter because you get to see him grow up and develop, and it's a lot more granular a process. Mm-hmm. There's seven books, and as opposed to three movies, 
Um, and uh, there are a lot more uh, moral re- revelations that he goes through. I mean, he, he really becomes an adult, uh, whereas Luke kind of gets trained to be an emotionless monk, which is not really the same thing as an adult. That is true. Yes. Okay, I'll give you that. Um, what about John McClane or Han Solo? Oh, Han Solo. Easy. <laughs> it's gen- that, that's, uh, that's pretty common, but now it gets the really tough questions here. Um, Han Solo or Indiana Jones? Uh, oh, yeah, that is the tough one. Because uh, uh, Han Solo's got the, the roguish scoundrel thing going on, and that's fun. Uh, and pretty attractive, but the uh, Indiana Jones has the, you know, the actual scientist and academic knows what he's doing. Uh, and apparently is an OSR spy during, uh, the world war. So that's pretty, uh, awesome as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think Indiana Jones. And what about Indiana Jones or Deckard from Blade Runner? Oh, Deckard's a dick. I don't care about him. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so for all the marbles, Josh, if you had one role-playing related wish, what would it be? Um, I'd really like to be done with Randy Jennings. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Josh Ruby. That's it for episode 47 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the show, Daniel at hazardgaming.com. Next week's show features Chris Bailey, who you may remember from episode 5. So until then... Keep talking the walk.